one of you is the monster. Monster? They're British, you know. Hello, I'm Chris Denton. And I'm Paul Monk. And we are a very British horror. So, Paul, please, what are we going to talk about tonight? We're going to talk about the uh, the haunting of Hill House, or hang on, uh, the house on Haunted Hill. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, um, yeah, it's the the Legend of Hell House. The Legend of Hell House. Could it be seventy three film? We're talking about an actual British horror film from the actual golden age of British horror tonight. We are. Wow. That's pretty impressive. And um, I think as you correctly called out there, this is quite similar sounding to a number of other films. <laughs> Those films all have the same plot as this film as well. More or less. They do. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I, I think, uh, so we should say what the plot is. Um, basically, haunted house uh a team of four people get assembled to spend five nights there i think it is um uh, and they need to come back and prove that either it, the afterlife exists or it doesn't by being in this haunted house yeah so, so that's, that, it, isn't it? that's right they've been all engaged by a, a billionaire called uh, Mr. Culver, so, no, 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 that's played, but no, he's called Mr. Deutsch, isn't he? Like, he is, yeah, yeah. Um, and he lives in Blenheim Palace. See, so he's a problem. <laughs> yeah. And it's really interesting that, that the four ghost hunters are um, Professor Barrett, played by Clive Revel, his, yep. his wife, uh, played by Gloria Honeyford. I was waiting for you to correct me there, Paul. <laughs> um, no, I'm just Gail laughing, Honeycutt. but I can't, I can't actually remember her name. But... Gail Honeycutt. <laughs> That's it. There is a survivor of a failed previous ghost hunt here. Um, yeah. Fisher, played by Roddy McDowell. And a young uh, female medium. She's called... Florence, her name is Florence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tanner. Florence Tanner, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, and she's played by Pamela Franklin. So there's, uh, there's already loads to talk about. Uh, I should also mention that the film is directed by John Huff, um, who had directed Twins of Evil a couple of years yeah. before. And what's was really. That only, was that his only hammer? That he did or did he do another one so that's a great question i was just looking at his foot for <laughs> um so so all the research we do beforehand obviously no well, I, I, I was looking, i don't think he made another hammer film um so what i was surprised to see that he went on to do um escape to which mountain and return from which mountain Yep. <laughs> I mean, so he's and uh, Biggles as as well. Um, he, he was a director 
on Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense. But he okay. made another Hammer movie. Uh, do you remember years ago when we went to see Twins of Evil at the um, Barbican? I do, and I was just about to bring that up myself. And he 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 introduced he introduced Twins of Evil, didn't he? Yeah, and he got a cheap round of applause by saying he was working on another Hammer film. He did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I remember not believing at the time and it, it didn't pan out either but you know <laughs> I'm sure he enjoyed the round of applause um, but well, why I'm particularly interested in the cast is uh, that these are not these are not the big names of horror so, so no. the, 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 there is a big name of horror uh, involved because well there's more than one actually right. But there's uh, Richard Matheson, who wrote the screenplay based on his original um, novel. Now, he's a big name of horror because he, yeah. he's the guy that wrote the screenplays for a lot of the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe adaptions, and he also wrote I Am Legend. Yep, which is great. Most of the films of that are terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but you see, so you've got a, a connection there to Vincent Price, at least. And um, this film's actually produced by uh, James H. Nicholson, who had been uh, one of the two producers of AIP, American International Pictures. And yep. This was one of his uh, very few sort of solo produ productions. Um, but there's another- it's His last one as well. Last Horror. No, it's his last one before, apparently, before he died. Oh, okay. So, because there was another, um, so something called Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry, which was, okay. uh, apparently he also worked on that. <laughs> so, um, uh, sounds good. Yeah, it really doesn't. But that was also directed by John Hoff. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, anyway, um, let's go off the point. Somewhat, because my point is, isn't this casting weird? When you've got all these connections to Vincent Price, and you have um, you you have ready-made roles for for the, the great horror stars of the time, you've got um, exactly. So, so Fisher and um, oh, uh, Barrett, isn't it? Barrett. Barrett. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is this could be a bit of a surprise. Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, uh, obviously John Hoff's worked with Peter Cushing. Um, yeah, and subsequently would go on to work with Christopher Lee, of course, in uh, Return from Witch Mountain. So, 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 why doesn't it have those people, uh, those big horror stars, in in this film? Well, I mean, it must have been a conscious decision to not cast it that way, to to to, to instead get get. Clive Rebel, who's a, um, well, I mean, a character actor, I think. Yeah. So, although, although a familiar face with a long filmography and, and a list of television credits, his main claim, I can think, sorry, go on. Well, his main claim to fame is that he was the voice of the Emperor in the early version of The Empire Strikes Back before um, one of... George Lucas's famous <laughs> okay. uh, revisions and changed it to um, uh, that guy from Sleepy Hollow, Ian yeah. McDermott. <laughs> so, 
yeah, yeah, but, but I mean that's a five-minute scene in any case, isn't it? So, that that, that yeah. is um, what what he's known for, apart apart from okay this 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 role. I mean, he was in many other things, so I mean, it's not. That he was, <laughs> uh, it was not that he was uh, like. Uh, a complete unknown or an amateur or he was a very obviously distinguished actor but he's not a big star like you would think the role was written for i could i, I mean watching it um i've watched it three times now watching it you yeah. can just see that, that these are cushing and lee parts but um yeah but what is good about it is that the the two central f- female roles as well so um the, the the role of Mrs. Barrett Anne, um, she's not a ghost hunter. She's she's, she's more or less um, along along for the ride. So that's a slightly, yep. <laughs> um, well, it's not exactly a very progressive role. Although she's although, but Gail Honeycutt is a brilliant actress. So I actually really enjoy yeah. her. She she makes quite a lot out of quite a thin character, I think. And yeah, um, and Gail uh, Honeycutt. Um, had a very distinguished career and um, not as an 80s British chat show host because that was Gloria Honeyford. But yeah, <laughs> Honeycutt, um, in, in many um, very good films, they're not particularly in the horror genre, I think, but lots of lots of things over a long, long period, very distinguished career. And Pamela Franklin, who interestingly is top billed. Um, yeah. She had been um, Flora in The Innocence. So she'd been a child actress. And The Innocence is a very great ghost film. One of the greatest ever, because that's an uh, adaption of Turn of the Screw. That's the one with Peter Wingard as the ghost. Yeah. yeah. Um, a very, very great film. Um, and she had been in that. And, and uh, I think she, um, at this point, she was making a bit of a name for herself as like a... a a horror film actress. Uh, I think she'd been in something that just just before this called something like the Necromancers or something. <laughs> it's right. Not 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 a movie I um, I've ever seen. I have to I have to I have to say. But um, hang on, I'll look I'll look at what that is because I can't just make random guesses. <laughs> uh, She was in another one called Now the Darkness as well. Okay. Uh, and Soon the Darkness. Necromancy. Okay. <laughs> there, there, there we go. Something called Necromancy, which presumably doesn't... Well, has got, well that's got Orson Welles in it. There we go. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's American, but that's probably good. I mean, we, we can't actually cover it, obviously, because it's American, but... You know. she's, apparently, she's apparently in The Nanny as well. Yes, The Nanny, which is a... Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, that's uh, Hammer Thriller. That's a very great film as well. That's one of the, the Seth Holt um, movies, isn't it, The Nanny? Yeah. That's, yeah. So, so you're talking about um, a really interesting cast, but, but not the cast you'd expect. Yeah, I, I sort of have a bit of a theory in that I think that in trying to move away and form his own company away from the sort of American international pictures. I think that this cast was deliberately chosen so that it wasn't to sort of distance, while still doing a similar sort of thing, but to distance himself from uh, the the uh, 
AIP films. Well, I think that's right. And I also, I must have mentioned this before on the podcast, I think when you get to the early 70s, well, you're, you're kind of at the end of the golden age of British horror, but you're, you're also at one of the most creative uh, periods. This is the, the period that, that brought us The Wicker Man and uh, Don't Look Now and, um, and The Asphyx and Blood and Satan's Claw and some really strong... Yeah. Legends of the Seven Golden Vampires. Which one? Legend the Legend of the Seven, Seven Golden, Golden Vampires. Vampires. Yeah. Obviously, that Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires sits above all the others. <laughs> the, the, the cinematic colossus, yes. <laughs> Do you know, I, I challenged, I did actually genuinely challenge someone who was who said that their favourite film of 1974 was Godfather Part 2, because I'm like, well, you're only saying that because you've forgotten Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires. <laughs> 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 Yeah, just <laughs> being a snob. No one, no one likes really long films, really like that. Much prefer <laughs> trashy stuff like Kung Fu Vampires. <laughs> uh, yeah, Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires is much shorter than The Godfather Part Two. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I think the casting here is. Um, a display of innovation, like you say, moving away, but trying to do things in a, in a, in a different manner. But also yeah. the way this film is shot is completely different from a Hammer movie and, you know, um, the, the Hammer style that other studios also imitated. Um, but very obviously, the... Um, the Haunting is a, is a key influence because it's Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a similar plot, but it's it's well, it's it's very nearly the same, but isn't it? Like the cast of characters, you have a a scientist, um, you have a a woman who's just sort of along for the ride, really as well, and then you have uh, a woman who's sort of slightly psychic, and then you have. Um, the final character who's who's related to the people that own the house so, so not uh, quite uh, the same but very nearly the same which one was Catherine Cita Jones and which one was Owen Wilson um Owen Wilson was the one and I'm ignoring what you're doing but Owen <laughs> Wilson was the one <laughs> who was related to the the people who own the house and Catherine Cita Jones was one of the others <laughs> oh, I did see I did see that film the the, the remake of it um and didn't think it was too bad, really. Uh, but but I went to a really late night showing, and I was um, it was it was really distracting because there were couples or two rows behind me who were very clearly, obviously, um, having sex. Uh, and yeah, that was quite annoying. During the remake of the haunting. Yes. Uh, I mean, I don't remember it being that romantic. I have to say. It was the Haymarket Haymarket Cinema in London. So, so I also saw the Hilting remake. I, I saw it in I saw, I saw it in Rygate. I remember enjoying it. It was quite heavy on CGI. Um, yeah. When CGI was a, a novelty, so it was really new. Was, I think. Yeah. Um, but I, I preferred um, the remake of House of Haunted Hill more. That that was more. Of, uh, yeah. And that had Jeffrey Rush. 
uh, doing a, a Vincent Price kind of impersonation. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah it, but you know, but Legends of Hell House has never been remade. Uh, it doesn't I think partly because those are, those um, other movies are um, haunting is renowned. Is the same. <laughs> well, Haunting is renowned as a great classic, isn't it? And um, the Haunting is brilliant. I have to say, the Haunting is is one of my all time favourite films. Um, and and mainly the because House on Haunted Hill is not renowned as a classic because it was a no. castle film with Vincent Price. Uh, it, it does have a it does have a, a a ridiculous skeleton in it. It does. Uh, no, but the um, the Haunting is genuinely one of the the, the best creepy films ever I think and I think it's um it's one of those films that just plays on atmosphere and actually this film does a similarly sort of good job I think until a certain point well it's it's trying to it's trying to do that yeah because yeah. Uh, and you can see that it's trying to do it in the same way the haunting so you don't have the special effects available that were available when you get to the 90 remakes so, so it's trying to do it with a few, uh, like, classic cinematic special effects, and then it's trying to do it a lot with um, talking. At least Richard yeah. Matheson's dialogue is very... Um, it's very good. I don't know, I've done a big pause and then used the word good. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it's also, it's also very fluent. So, so when I say I watched this film three times, but actually the... The first time I really liked it was the third time because at that point, at that point, the kind of the rhythm of the way people are speaking and the way it's performed, um, actually, re I really started to like that. Getting over my problems with, with the, the movie, the, the, the characters aren't tremendously engaging. I think that's my no. big problem with it. So, well, you're sort of you're sort of thrown into it a bit and. So, so although you've got the bit at the beginning where where Barrett is getting his assignment, you're not really properly introduced to anyone. You just, they're they're sort of all thrown in, which is fine. But then there isn't a lot of backstory to any of them. I don't think the only one who sort of does have is is um, Roddy McDowell's character. But then it's only because he was the only survivor from the previous. Um, that's more or less investigation. The entirety of his backstory. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they it, argue, don't they? Yeah. Like it's not even like they get on because um, Barrett is some kind of. Uh, he says he's a physicist, but he's also a parapsychologist. But he's he's trying to he's he's doing the pseudoscience explanation for for, for ghostly apparitions and whatever. And yeah. Um, where, 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 whereas uh, Tanner, Forrest Tanner, she is um, she's coming from a more religious um, background, isn't she? So, so she she thinks yeah, it's like yeah. power given to her by God, and yeah, so so they they clash because they have different beliefs. They they both yeah. they both can kind of see that the other person uh, knows a lot about the the area, but but um, they don't actually. That they also think they're just fundamentally wrong, and then then. Yeah, so they clash quite a lot. Um, Fisher doesn't clash with anyone, um, but um, 
at least Barrett gets very annoyed with him because he thinks he's not trying, which is true. Uh, he's a he's he's another medium that he his approach is to try and like shut that off, not do any, uh, not try and make contact with any spirits at all, just like, get through the few days and get the money from the yeah. the, the dying old rich guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm presuming he's um that that yeah some of that is also because of what happened last time. Um, yeah, because. He, so he's deliberately just trying to just get through it. Well, and he's seen the previous group that he was with basically wiped out by whatever was in the house. Yeah. We should probably start talking a bit about what's in the house, uh, what what these manifestations are. I did just have a really weird thought when you were talking about um, Barrett and him being a physicist and parapsychologist. So I did think that this would be a very slightly more interesting, uh, different film if if he was actually Peter Venkman. I thought there, the, you know, there are definitely parallels with Ghostbusters. I I think Ghostbusters was obviously um, partly um, sending up previous supernatural films yes. and the style of it. Uh, and there's definitely, uh, you know, a link between this is this is a, a serious take on what Ghostbusters was ultimately sending up. And, and there's exoplasm, yeah. isn't there? There's a, there's a scene. There is. <laughs> which, which is, uh, yeah, yeah, there's a few different parallels. Um, like uh, Professor Barrett at the end, he's got uh, like an equivalent of... Um, the Ghostbusters and, and their, their, their photon guns. He's <laughs> <laughs> got this big, big machine. Yeah, exactly. Um, Ghostbusting. It is a Ghostbusting machine, though. That is literally it is. what it is. <laughs> it is. But also, when, when they wheeled it in, it, did, it, it, it reminded me slightly of the stone tape. So, uh, absolutely. So, the stone tape, which we, we covered... Uh, years ago now in a very yeah. early episode it was that um tv film that nigel neil wrote and yeah. that also yeah. well, that, really the year before this oops i think was that 1972 really similar in a lot of ways and uh, and barrett is quite similar isn't isn't he to uh the michael it's a michael bryant character from the, the stone tape who's the main character yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you, you can, again, you can see the parallels, I don't know. But then you wonder, with all of these things, who's kind of riffing on who? Because this is clearly riffing on, um, well, it's, it's Richard Matheson's own novel, which is riffing on um, the, the Haunting of Hill House, and, and also the Haunting film, um, as was probably the stone tape to a certain degree, looking at it from a slightly different point of view. Well, um, absolutely. The, so the, the stone tape has got this, this this theory about what ghosts are that they're basically re- recordings, aren't they? Uh, but this kind of a lot of how uh, Hell House is about just trying to work out exactly who's right and what the ghostly manifestations are. If they're they're not actually personalities, but they're more of a like a um, so it's like a stone tape kind of scenario, which is, I think, what Barrett thinks they are. Um, he, he's kind of energy, isn't it? That's what he thinks it yeah. is. Yeah. 
one ever sort of um there's not really anyone here that in this that is a real sort of skeptic though they're all kind of just going on the assumption that it's something rather than it being nothing if that makes sense well um for for Barrett, this is this is the mother load, isn't it? He's probably been waiting his whole career. In fact, it's it's very much implied in, in in as much as we know of his career that he's been waiting for this opportunity because this is the Belasco house, Hell House, is, yeah. is the most haunted house in like the whole world, basically. And he's not being able to get to it because um, the Belasco family have just had it like shut up. Um, yeah, but then. You know, our, our, um, our billionaire Deutsch has paid them off in order to get hold of the house and to get Barrett access, which he's never had before. So, yeah. so there's, there's, no, there's no one who, who's like, oh, this is all a load of nonsense, there's no such thing as ghosts, because it's just like, well, okay, <laughs> we know that people who, go, who stay in this house will die, or mostly die, and we're, we're, we're here to find out what it is. We're not here to say, ah, oh, it's all just, you know, uh, mice. It's mice. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just occurred, it's just occurred to me, actually, because I, I was trying to think about why the old man bought the house. But, of course, if he's dying, what he's he wants proof that there's something after it. Uh, that's it. That's what, that's, yeah, which that's I didn't didn't get till till about five minutes ago. Just suddenly thought, yeah, no, that's that's exactly why he wants them to find out that there is something after after death, and and that's the whole reason why he splurged and bought this house. And, and he gives them a very short uh, deadline as well. He says, "I need to know in a week." So so, yeah. so so presumably, whatever's wrong with him, it's very wrong with him. <laughs> it's, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> he needs he needs he needs his answer very quickly. Um, so so but then because it's quite subtle, um, you, it is possible to to, to miss that. You're only going guessing at his motivation based on his actions because you, you never yeah. you never really see it. You just see an old guy in a wheelchair. I think who doesn't look that well. But, you know, um, from that and from what he says, then you, you're having to work it out. And it's the same, actually, with all the backgrounds of these characters. You, you, you kind of like, you, you, I mean, I'm saying, I think this is the the, uh, the thing that Barrett's been waiting for. It's been 20, because it mentioned he's been doing this for 20 years. So this it's, yeah. it's should be like the um, crowning moment of his career. But I mean, he doesn't say that. He doesn't really say anything about his life. <laughs> and the thing is, his wife's there, but you never get any real um, insight into their personal lives. Um, just no. When she um, gets uh, affected by the haunting, doesn't she? And there's some slightly dodgy stuff um, yeah. by, by, by today's standards that... Um, she she finds a book uh, called some, something like uh, autoerotic phenomena, and then she makes a beeline for um, Fisher and tries to seduce him, and he, he yeah. he's not terribly interested uh, and slaps her, <laughs> and, and then and then she's like, what what was I doing? And and then he's 
like how you were uh, you were you you were sleepwalking um well it's it's standard hysterical woman it's a fact that if you have a hysterical woman you have to slap her to get get her to stop being hysterical but that was a sort of given fact but you see <laughs> yeah i know i know i know and that's terrible uh, like it's so um oh we actually it's it's awful but um the, the way the way the um that the gloria honeyford plays the scene okay honeycup yeah, um, and there's another scene a bit later on where where, where she, she, she does a similar thing again where, yeah where where where, where, where um, you, you, you're like okay is she possessed or <laughs> is, 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 is she just really bored <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> she's she kind of says because the second time she's she she's gets caught doesn't she her husband watches her um and she's she's and he's annoyed and she, she says something like i knew what i was doing but you know i did it anyway i couldn't seem to stop myself I think, yeah. and that's kind of ambiguous i mean i think it is implied that it's part of the haunting but also it's like well how much of that was there anyway how much of but how much of uh, her life is kind of um, uh, constrained and restricted and she feels like she needs to get out and get free and enjoy herself. See, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't really read it as ambiguous. I, to me, it was, it was completely the, the haunting um, and her being possessed. And um because again there's lots of lots of it's part of the history of it was there's lots of um sort of debauched things that happened in the house uh, and yeah but but is she possessed or, or does she just like the sound of that <laughs> that's that's the well, yeah i don't know <laughs> um to, to, to be honest um i, I don't know i i like i'm this might well i think there's a there's a bit more going on and there's definitely something that's that, that's um not great about their relationship which is nothing to do with the um absolutely nothing to do with the haunting it was there before then you get yeah. well maybe maybe there is something there because you know obviously the the size of uh dr barrett's machine at the end it makes it seem like he might be com overcompensating for something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. Um, and and uh, um, you, you, you have a, a, an even more troubling scene with um, uh, Florence where, 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 where she basically gets seduced by the ghost, doesn't she? So she, yeah. she, she, she thinks that, um, that, that she, she can... Because she thinks the ghost is Daniel Belasco, the son of Belasco. Yeah. And that she she right. he finds her body, buries it, and then it doesn't um does it doesn't um stop the haunting. So she just thinks if she shows him a bit of love, um, then that'll do it. Um, yeah. but then it turns it turns out that well that it, it goes wrong and, and, and that she she gets quite badly bashed up at, yeah. in this in this in this film um really badly actually um is she the one that's attacked by the cat yeah exactly yeah so 
she is by a possessed cat and you you and i paul we're both cat owners and we know cats do not do this (laughs) they might hiss at you but but um a cat is not going to jump at you (laughs) well you say that i do have a cat that does that but she's normally just jumping on my shoulders so she can kind of drape herself around my neck do you do you also have a chapel with a like mysterious plate <laughs> glass that you've never really got behind. No, <laughs> that's good. Please. That's good. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> no, that because uh, I've been around. I've had lots of cats, and they've never, you know, attacked me in this manner. But, I mean, I know cats can really. They've not been possessed by it. By they can really hurt you if they want to. That is true. I mean, cats can. Yeah. But um, they don't. They. Yeah, they, they generally if you upset them, they run away. They wouldn't fight you. But anyway, no. not 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 that I've made a study of obsessing cats. I, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, moving well, on. there's there's three stages to cat fights, which is the uh, let's stay far apart and and make lots of noise at each other. Yeah, and then it it can move on to the second stage, which is if they're a bit closer they might actually just kind of wave their paws at each other a bit whilst yeah, making yeah. noise. And, and then there's the third one, which they try and avoid at all costs where there's actual physical contact, but that very rarely happens. No. The other but... thing I've noticed as well, sorry, digressing. There's, there's the great thing I've noticed that cats do when, when they, they've, they've had a bit of a, they've screamed at each other and then one of them has gone, okay, we've stopped now screaming at each other, but, I can't actually back off because I don't want to be seen to lose and and to the other cat. And so what I've noticed they do is they walk really slowly. It's really funny. Yeah. So the cat will literally just lift a paw off the ground slightly <laughs> and then gradually move it forward. <laughs> anyway, we're, we're digressing. Yeah, but I, th- I think what, what was, well, I, I'm just not seeing natural cat behavior but i guess in in horror films cat, cats do do this kind of thing but uh, I, I yeah i mean it's actually quite well done the, the thing, it is i as soon as i saw that i thought oh here we go this is we're gonna have like a terrible cat puppet or something and and actually they they it was shot quite well i mean it yeah, obviously well, was a terrible it, cat puppet it gives us something um uh, physical to for, for the scene as well because there's obviously been a creative decision to not show uh, apparitions. So, so yeah. uh, although the the ghosts can move things and they throw uh, like poltergeist style throw things at uh, the characters and and stuff and you know even kill a couple of the characters. <laughs> like, yeah, um, they they um, you never actually see the ghosts at all no. but having a like a cat at least you've got some kind of physical thing because i think um although it's very effectively done it kind of leaves uh this is a this is why the film's slightly difficult there's there's no and there's no tangible antagonist is there there's, there's like uh sheets well, and doors slamming and, and candlesticks rattling yeah which, which <laughs> works 
it does and to be fair that works really well in a haunting and i think it does work quite well here to an extent i mean i watched this the other day and it was i was sat i watched it quite late so i was in the living room by myself in the in the dark and it did actually i did actually find the atmosphere quite quite sort of creepy um and, and but 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 it, i think that part of the i guess part of the problem is that you're led to believe there's there's loads and loads and loads of different ghosts in this. That's one of the theories, yeah. Yeah, which ultimately turns out not to be true. No, because the ghost is at, is Belasco, and so we've heard from Belasco at the beginning because they find this record with him saying, yeah. "Welcome to my house. Um, I am your unseen guide," uh, and. It's a voice we recognise, although not, not not in the credits, and 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 you might yeah. not immediately uh, get it. But um, well, I didn't. I didn't recognise the voice. I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention, but, which is odd because this particular actor has a reasonably recognisable voice. I think. Yes, but the the the, the, the record isn't very long, and um, no. You, you may remember at the start of the lockdown, I mentioned that I'd um, watched And Then There Were None, the BBC adaption. Well, it's funny, And Then There Were None isn't a million miles away from this, yeah, because that has the, 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 the record. Um, right. Kicks, kicks things off as well. It's, I think um, uh, that, that's a, a 30th book, isn't it? Or, or, some, somewhere along, along there. It's much, yeah. much older than, than uh, this one anyway. So obviously it's quite a well-worn trope by um, the time of Legend of Hell House. But, but it, does, it, it does help um, to, to, to establish that Belasco is, is one of the suspects and ultimately the, the villain. But because we can't see Belasco, because we can't see ghosts in this, um, you don't actually see him find him until the the end where um, his perfectly preserved body is in a kind of secret chamber that I alluded to yeah apple and it's michael goff it is i was quite because i hadn't recognized his voice early on when he appeared at the end i was a bit like oh oh that's interesting i wonder what's going to happen now and then i noticed there were about like four minutes of the film left or something and i thought okay that's a interesting uh casting choice i think it's i think it's uh, really clever so so you, you've got this completely almost completely unseen uh phantom literally phantom presence uh, but the, the few things you do have the, the little voice clips and the, 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 there is some audio there's some ghostly audio and i think some of that um not, not like the record but but um things that the mediums can hear. I think a little bit of that is also a microgolf. So, so you're, you're, you're building this, this, um, th th this big important character. This is the, the person who's responsible for everything. Um, but, but you've got a tiny amount of screen time, tiny amount of uh, ways to do it. So you've got to go for, um, you, you've got to go for a, a presence, which is, um, a big presence, um, so some, something you could like a recognizable face, recognizable voice, <laughs> probably more recognizable back in the 70s. Uh, but um, 
but you also can't overbalance it, yeah. Because if 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 it was yeah. if it was Clint Eastwood say sat in that chair, uh, you'd just get taken right out of the film, wouldn't you? So yeah. <laughs> you, you, you uh, it's 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 actually really hard to cast something like that, and I think they just got it absolutely right. And, and in, uh, in some ways, the casting of this film annoys me because I want. You know, I want the creeping flesh. I want, I want Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, another great team up. Or, um, you know, you know, if, if one of them yeah. is Bryce, then fine. I also like that. You know, <laughs> let's make up for the oblong box. Let's, let's, let's do. Yeah. But um, <laughs> by going completely away from it and doing something else, it it it, it, it works as as well. I think. I think it doesn't overbalance things with star power. It's it's. Um, yeah, I, I think very inspired. However, I, I just think the lack of the big name. Roddy McDowell was a reasonably big name, wasn't he? I mean, um, yeah, he'd been a child Hollywood star, and he was all known through his career. And I think most famous uh, now. I'm not sure if this was always the case, but certainly it's the case now. He's most famous for Planet of the Apes. Um, well, by the time this was out, they were probably on about the fourth Apes film. Fourth or fifth Apes film. I think so. I thought... No, 73 was probably um, the third one, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I think. Something like that. Or oh, no, maybe... I, I don't know. I, I lose track of where, which one it was. Uh, so, uh, okay. Yeah, Planet of the Apes, 68, yeah. And the TV series uh, followed in 74. So I think you're... Um, oh, okay, so yeah, so he probably had done most of the films by by that point. Yeah, so this is the same year as, as Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, okay. He's probably, at this point, glad, glad not to be in the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, those are, those are, those are very good films so I'm not surprised they are they're very well liked and obviously came came back uh, a couple of times as well um, since since then but um, it's curious though isn't it William Dow's got that high-pitched voice uh, that he uses throughout and I yeah I can't remember him in other things enough to know whether he always does that or whether he was deliberately making that voice yeah i i don't know i think i think maybe it was a deliberate choice he's quite twitchy at the beginning as well and he reminded me a lot of anthony perkins yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah i mean I see. but then of course the only other thing i sort of really know roddy mcdowell for is fright night Oh, where, oh, where he plays a tribute to two horror actors. Yes, no, Peter Vincent. I really like those Fright Night films. Really, yeah. I even like um, Fright Night Part Two and the Fright Night remake. That's how much I like Fright Night. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Rod, Rod, Roddy McDowell plays Peter Vincent, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as far as I know, this is his only like um, horror film role from the Peter Vincent period, from the the classic yeah, yeah. era of horror yeah. films. So. 
<laughs> I think I think he was sort of generally more well known as a sort of um, TV actor, wasn't he? Um, I think. Well, yeah. I'm not really sure. I think I think he did a lot. I think he did. He, he just carried. Yeah. He, he works a lot. I think he's in. Um, he's one of the suspects. One of those all-star cast Poirot films, isn't he? I think exactly. Uh, yeah, he's all over the place. Um, so, but that's that's fine. Yeah, um, but I don't know. I, I, but I think the, the the problem is, and I'm sure he has lots of fans, science fiction fans. Um, but I don't think people find this film because they like Roddy McDowell enough to 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 to, to do that. I mean, no, it is. It, it, you know, it's it's so. I wonder if films from um, like our, our period, which I keep calling the golden age, um, obviously if you look at Stone Look Now, that, that's got, that doesn't have um, that kind of cast. That's got uh, Donald Sutherland and uh, Julie Christie, hasn't it? And, yeah. Um, but <laughs> Donald Sutherland was on the cusp then in fact it probably was already a massive international star so, so and, and that probably um meant it transcended the horror genre a bit um yeah. whereas i don't think legend of Hell house was ever gonna break out like that um but the, the haunting that doesn't have a, a horror cast does it um, I don't think no that's that's that um, i mean that would have been a very different movie if Vincent Price had been in there. They'd have gone for Vincent Price and Basil Rathbone and yeah. <laughs> get Boris Karloff in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so sometimes these great stars that, that we that we love, they can they can change. Uh, they can, they're not good for, for, for every film, but no, not in the films that those, those films can. Are much more likely to become uh, obscure. I think maybe less. I th- yeah, I think I think this this film's very much going for the the sort of serious um, feel. I think, um, right. I think there's an element that by this stage, having someone like Vincent Price um, in your film was probably not going to make people take it seriously. And yeah, maybe that's an element of, of that with some of the other the horror actors as well. But I mean, Vincent Price probably more so. I think he was in in far more kind of less campy. serious, campy films. Yeah, although, although obviously, as Witchfinder General proves, he could be tremendously um, effective playing yeah. playing straight. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, this was. This was Theatre of Blood was round about here, wasn't it? <laughs> Which is a yeah. great, great, great film, but a totally different kind of thing. Um, also, in, in America, in, in America, there was um, the independent cinema movement. Um, so, so it kind of started with Easy Rider, hadn't it? And, and you got a lot um, before the age of the blockbuster. Um, yeah. 
which kind of came in mid 70s like, like early 70s you've got these, these robert altman films and all uh, the coppola um all sorts of uh, really interesting uh independent looking even if they were big studio yeah. uh, movies i mean and that's you, you know like uh, if real cinephiles consider that to be uh, a golden age of um, Hollywood, if, if, if you would, and um, maybe, maybe you know, um, James H. Nicholson and John Hoff have got half half an eye on that and thinking we want to be more part of that movement. Maybe make it a bit yeah, yeah. seriously, and and then this, this this the old hammer way. Well, that's you know, it's a joke now. Uh, and yeah, exactly. Certainly, certainly in America. Um, well, I think everywhere, but in in America, the uh, Hammer films they're, they're, they're always like much more for kids than they were in, in Britain always. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, and by this time, they were just they just weren't getting distributed in America. I think Hammer had lost all its American deals. Uh, pro- probably the Vampire Lovers was the last one actually. Um, so yeah. so um, that was about three years b- before. So so the the last thing. Uh, they would want to do is anything in the hammer style or even in the uh aip style because um yeah, yeah. uh the the corman cycle had finished hadn't it and um uh vampire lovers was a co-production with hammer between hammer and aip and i think um <laughs> in a lot of ways that's that kind of marks the the, the kind of end of the popularity of those kinds of films very sadly, yeah. But, but yeah. also the the beginning of the really great, great creative few years at the end of the, uh, the horror boom that um, that I mentioned. So um, I, I think um, you can really see in Legend of Hell House that that it, it was it's all it's almost wants to be part of uh, independent cinema tradition um, as yeah. well as uh, as the British horror, and and I, I'm not, I can't really think of any other um, British horror movie from this time that that, that looks like this. Or no, I mean, I was going to quickly get onto that in that um, I think some of the camera shots and directing choices are quite interesting. They are They're really kind of quite odd, sort of crash zoom type things in early on, and then some other kind of weird camera angles. And then, of course, you've got the, the soundtrack, which is done by Brian Hodgson and Delia Derbyshire, so ex of the uh, Radiophonic Workshop, who, who do know. this kind of odd, just strange noise type uh, soundtrack, which I didn't find too intrusive. So I wasn't I liked really aware of it a lot of the time. And, but I it, liked but it. it. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's just, just, yeah, just, just kind of makes it uh, seem a little bit different. So um, from what could be quite a sort of stale, uh, sort of stale film, really. So the soundtrack is very different to a, like a James Bernard, um, <laughs> and despite because I'm not you may feel differently i'm not a massive fan of the radio workshop I, i've got this kind of um 
this memory of the sea devils and this like Casio keyboard <laughs> going on. Um, so I don't really like this, but but I think um, this Philistine. Pardon? I said Philistine. Well, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't feel the same way I feel about that. Uh, about this, I, I think the score actually really works. Um, Incidentally, if you get the chance, you should go and see uh, the Radiophonic Workshop live band because it, they're really cool. Are you sure, or would it be my CD? No, they are. It's really good. Okay. <laughs> the drummer, the drummer that plays with them, used to be the drummer in the Prodigy. So there we go. I'm, I'm pretty. I don't. I didn't. <laughs> Before that, see a link between the Radiophonic Workshop and the Prodigy. But um, now I realise there's a strong link. I'm quite impressed. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and he's the youngest person in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, okay. Now, I'm just trying to think I've got anything else I really want to say about, about this film. Well, I, I just wanted to ask you what you thought of the ending because um, for me, I thought it did a really, really fantastic job of building up uh, the atmosphere right the way up till the point where Roddy McDowell does the big shouty bit in the chapel. And, and then as soon as it's revealed that Michael Goff is sitting behind in that secret chamber, um, it all fell a bit flat. For me, and it was—I felt it was a bit of a, bit of a sort of anticlimax. I don't know what you thought. So, uh, well, I, I agree with that. So, I, I kind of like it from a from a kind of mystery point of view. It resolves the mystery, and then yeah. you've got this kind of weird thing about Belasco um, so being so upset that he was short; he had his legs amputated. Oh yeah, no, of course that 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 whole leg thing and and the uh, that whole thing where where the previous investigators ended up with their legs smashed to smithereens that sort of came out of nowhere as well. It was a bit kind of and it, that that it, the ending is very much it's very much like yeah it's very much like a Poirot or something like that where they've where the detective is is revealing the kind of big secret to the, to the murder and it all it just i don't know it just felt a bit weird and just a little bit scooby-doo-ish well, <laughs> it's almost like they could pull his mask off i i think you're right i think i, th I think, I think and, it, and i don't think it's the way to uh, end a ghost story i think um what you really you, the um the manifestations should reach a crescendo shouldn't they <laughs> that's that's what they, should. they they sort of do but then you know i i, I was thinking it you, you'd have hell, that, of all hell break, break break loose and them uh sort of trying to run away from the house as it i don't know loads of weird stuff happens but <laughs> it's sort of just it's almost like it all just gets turned off well, um, and the ghost busting machine comes in. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I think that's absolutely right, and I think the problem narratively, you can see why you do that, but it, it leaves you a slightly deflated at the end. When what, what, what you really want is 
um, them to have escaped, um, there would have been um, like critical danger like five yeah. seconds before and then just go, oh yeah, we've escaped. Not a long explanation. Yeah. And there's, um, okay, so one of the most famous uh, demonstrations of this is North by Northwest, where um, with about 30 seconds of the film to go, they're dangling off um, Mount Rushmore. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and yeah. then, um, but the, the villains defeated, uh, and, and then, um, but basically, um, our hero, Cary Grant, pulls uh, Grace Kelly up, and then the, the, it cuts from Mount Rushmore to her, to him pulling her up onto the train. They're going for their honeymoon. The end, and and yeah. that's kind of that. That is, you, you don't you don't have ten minutes of explaining why James Mason was evil yeah. <laughs> at the end of North yeah. by Northwest. You just like, oh, don't worry about that. The action's over. It's finished now. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, but it's almost like you sort of don't really need the stuff with the legs. And it'd be different if that was signposted earlier on in the film or something like that. You know, where it belongs. It's where it belongs, you're right. Yeah. And it and and if at that point you went, Yeah, of course. That that explains it. Where like it, there's no sort of penny drop moment, it's just like, huh? What? It just, it just for me, it really didn't work, and it kind of deflated everything that went before. More than that, um, Fisher seems to suddenly know a lot more about um, Belasco than he did earlier, and it's yeah, exactly clear where that information has come from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, because earlier in the film, he's because he's obviously has researched it, but he says Belasco is six foot five and he's the roaring giant. But then yeah. later it's revealed that that's all like Belasco's own um, self-mythology that he, he was obviously, because he was so um, paranoid. But then, but then is, is, is that meant to be because he, he opens himself up to the, the everything at the end? Because, and that's how he knows, psychically by the way, so that's how he knows how there's no no ghosts or whatever anywhere in the house except the one bit. And at that point I think he's, he's opened up. That must be the explanation, but... It, but it's it, not clear. <laughs> it, it's like, okay, so his medium power is that he... Um, <laughs> he, 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 he can then uh, absorb the plot without having to be told it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> exposition, exposition, yeah. <laughs> he can immediately reel off the exposition. <laughs> with but it's so, sort of not needed. It's... Almost, it's it's almost like uh, so I, I agree had that. this idea that he thought was quite clever, and then wrote this sort of ghost story novel, and then thought, "Oh bugger, I haven't put that idea in. I, I better try and just shove it in at the end." Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think um, yeah, because because he, he wrote the screenplay as, as well, so no one fixed that problem. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and and to be fair, I'm, I'm not. It's, it's not one of the the novels that you hear loads about when you when Richard Matheson's name is is brought up. It's not. It's not. It's not one of the one novels that gets talked about. No. No. Absolutely not. Um, 
I, I'm not sure that he's very widely read these days. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I Am Legend is in print, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure that, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't feel the pressing need to 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 read it, or indeed the, this this one. What what I like Richard Matheson for are those Roger Corman films. I think. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, the the book of I Am Legend is is fantastic. It's it's really good. Um, and but I haven't really read any of other, his other stuff. The other thing I wanted to bring up because I realised we're sort of getting on time wise was that um, the scene where Barrett gets uh, killed, so what, what, I can't remember what it is, that explodes yeah. in his face. Apparently, I was reading that there, apparently there was a, because obviously the version we watched, that happens, and then the next thing we see is him... Uh, dead, in the chapel. Dead. Now, apparently there was a longer TV version cut that had a sequence with that continued that where he he ran backwards and then things in the house start, started attacking him and then he was a chandelier was dropped on top of him so i'm kind of really intrigued as to what happened to that version and you don't need it so so, so um, you don't need it but, but i just wondered but why, why that version have it because um then um his wife finds out that he's dead because she's um, um, he's calling to her and he, and he goes and she goes and she follows the calling because he does it a couple of times and then goes into the chapel yeah. And, yeah. And, and his body's there obviously it hasn't been him calling so 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 uh, with the with, with having seen what happened to him that that scene would would, would, would wouldn't work nearly so well so sorry Paul, I'm talking over you again but I think that's right the TV version just put it in for the extra gore although oh, okay um, cinematically it shouldn't be there I like I, I like not seeing because you you know you don't need to see um, him get attacked by animate objects it's probably uh, no. uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I I, th I think this is not uh, like a splatter film, and I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I watched the um, the Witchfinder General because um, you know that there's a version of that with the gore cut back in, and it's just yeah. so like, why did you even do this? Because <laughs> it's like yeah. poor quality because it's not. They, they got it off some dodgy videotape, I think. And <laughs> I, I, the film worked perfectly well without these shots, and you can watch it without them. And it's just like, okay, yeah. If you if you really want to see um, the most complete version, and you, you then fine. But actually, um, a lot a lot of it a lot a lot of it isn't. It doesn't do. It doesn't carry the plot forward. It's um, the, the the exploitation element of the film. And yeah, well, I just it. wondered why the. Um, I just wondered, presumably, the the version of the film without without that is like the the proper version. And I just just wondered how the other version came about. 
why that footage was sort of lurking around. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard that, that story. Um, yeah. I, I know that the, because we watched the DVD, I know there is a Blu-ray of it. Um, yeah. But um, obviously this wasn't like restored for the Blu-ray, was it? This was... Um, no. But then, you know, quite quite often there the, the there have been special TV versions uh, for various reasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, um, and that sounds like it was one to try and, you know, up the, up the blood, um, not, up the, not up the body count, but just make, make it a bit more yeah. bloody, more uh, vis- visceral film. Uh, the, <laughs> the one I remember is, um, because I had to watch it, the, you know the the, the gene specialist. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Well, I mean that, that that goes so far as to have like storyboards in it. <laughs> it's like oh, just shove it all Why? in. All in. <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't tend to, um, I, I don't after after my experience with that, I don't tend to seek out these longer TV versions. No, I think there's 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 some merit if if the film was massively interfered with by a studio or something, and and then there's a version that's um, more well, true to what the original vision was, or indeed the censors, because yeah, yeah, um, you know, and I think I think that's fine, and if it if it if restoring it then puts in. Um, helps some make something make a bit more sense but generally i think that the idea of that, that actually these films were cut for bits for cut for a reason and generally that's usually to do with timing and 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 pace and you usually find that when you have these films with um deleted scenes sort of restored into them that the pace of the film ends up going all over the place and 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 not usually better off for it in fact some of the best director's cuts of films I think are ones where they they end up being marginally shorter or around the same sort of length so um I did watch the alternate version of Eric the Viking I don't know if you've ever seen that but no but it, it just supports your point because um I, I, th- I think uh, Terry Jones was not happy with Eric the Viking uh, the way it came out and I think he felt he didn't have enough time to edit it properly before it was released yeah so the director's cut, it's actually the director's son's cut, because um, it, was, it, it was actually done by Terry Jones' son under Terry Jones' supervision. But that yeah. is exactly like you say, it's shorter than the original theatrical release. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, Eric the Viking is still not a great film, but... <laughs> no. It, I'm it, thinking it, things like like the, the sort of final cut of Blade Runner is, is actually shorter than the theatrical cut. There's a things like that. There's a final cut of Wicker Man, which is shorter than the director's cut as well, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, th- I, th- I think that's. Huh, I, I think your 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 point is absolutely right, and I also think it's time to. <laughs> it's time to end it uh, for for this exciting so. episode. Uh, apart from our usual did, traditional. Did you actually like? Did you actually like this film, by the way? Just, um, just okay. So I could, I'm going to answer that for each time I watched it. Years ago, um, it was okay. Uh, 
when I rewatched it a few months ago, not really. And then when I rewatched it earlier today, yes. Okay. <laughs> so, maybe it depends what mood I'm in. But like I say, um, the fact that the characters annoyed me uh, made it hard for me to engage with it. And for some reason, yeah. watching it again, I'm just like, there's a certain rhythm to it, a certain uh, level of production quality I do really like. Yeah, yeah. What about you? Do you like it? I, d- I did like it, I d- I, apart from the end. Yeah, I mean, you're right about the end. You're, you're, you're absolutely right about the ending. Uh, it should have more or less finished 30 seconds after they, they find Michael Goff. Because that yeah. would be high impact. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, All right, then. Social media. So what, 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 find us on Bebo, find us on Friends Reunited. Yeah, MySpace. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can find us on, on Facebook where we're Very British Horror or on Twitter where we're at Very Brit Horror or you can email us, us at a very British Horror at gmail.com. Brilliant. I'm going to do all of those things right now, which means I need to stop recording this podcast, which means I've been Chris Denton. And I'm still Paul Monk. Goodbye. Bye.